afternoon, Sir Hepla. Good afternoon, Nancy Rommelman. How art thou doing? I that I thus I I don't know. I'm doing Feinst. fine. Feinst. Um, but who's really doing fine? He's doing so fine that he told us that his little um his little handle here is pronounced G. He's <laughs> doing really fine. It's so what? G exclamation mark. G exclamation mark. Sarah, why don't you uh, introduce our special guest for the week? Well, we do have a guest, and I've written a small introduction here. Uh, I first became aware of Greg Lukianoff when I read the 2015 Atlantic essay he co-wrote with Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind. That story became a classic, diagnosing what had gone wrong in American universities, where well-intentioned ideas about safety and protection led to rising rates of anxiety and depression, along with a troubling shift away from free speech. Eventually, Coddling turned into a best-selling book, and Lukianoff became one of the most vital voices pushing back on a liberalism coming from both the left and the right. He's the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, also known as FIRE, and a lawyer who specializes in free speech and First Amendment issues in higher education, all of which situates him perfectly for his latest book, The Canceling of the American Mind. By the way, coming out Tuesday, October 17th, pre-order it now. A book he co-wrote with Ricky Schlott, a former NYU student and New York Post contributor. The Canceling of the American Mind picks up where Coddling left off, examining the fallout of the past several years as problems once only seen at the college level came to infect journalism, the arts, nonprofits, psychotherapy, medicine, and so much of our lives. As the subhead suggests, the book shows how cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. And I know I'm not alone when I say thank freaking God. Greg <laughs> Lukianoff, welcome to Smoke and Gotham. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I can't live up to that introduction. I'm going okay. to disappoint you all. <laughs> Never. Well, thanks for coming. Um, Greg, we're we're so happy to have you. I'm so glad that you wrote this book. It's so timely. It's sort of been the book, I think, that's been kicking around in a lot of our minds yeah. for the past couple of years because we've all witnessed it, we've all experienced it, we've all written about it, and um, it can make you feel very desolate because yes. you see how people are, as, as I've, I've written many times before, certain swaths of the culture, which Sarah kind of um, just mentioned, they, they have an insatiable appetite for canceling. Um, and also for it, saying that, that that even though they're in the cancel mobs, that cancel culture isn't even real. Yes. So Well, yes, that's yet one of my other questions is how dare you write about this phenomenon that doesn't even exist? Yeah, exactly. So, like, like, that's what why our first chapter is called The Gaslighting of the American Mind. Um, <laughs> yes. we, we open up on the book talking about the collective freak out after the New York Times pointed to data that that's confirmed by all the other polls that um, uh, Americans hate cancel culture, black, white, liberal, conservative, that they're afraid of it, that they're afraid of saying what they really think. And, you know, um, uh, Keith Oberman and, you know, the, the, the usual suspects all flipped out saying like, like, like really like saying, I, like, I would quit the New York Times for running this. I'm like, wait a second. They come out with a poll that shows something that pretty much every other poll shows. And they actually, you know, they, they showed the, the guts to actually say cancel culture is real. And, and they emphasize more of the cancel culture coming from the right. But that's fine. You know, just I'll, I'll take it. And the collective freak out of something that was uh, because it was just like it was forbidden to be talked about. 
is this because, is the freak out because either A, they secretly don't want to give up a tool that they know is real, or B, they just somehow feel that this is a, a leveling of the playing field that they think is desirable? I think it's a, a whole bunch of mixed motives. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of all over the place. But one, one thing that I, I am prepared for in this book is that in Coddling of the American Mind, we could say this is good intentions and bad ideas. Um, that essentially, you know, this is coming from a place of trying to protect kids and going too far and harms them. Um, there's no way to say the same thing about cancel culture, because even if people have convinced themselves that they're the savior of this other group or person over there, it's usually, it's almost never them. It's like some abstraction over there. They excuse themselves to be incredibly cruel towards flesh and blood people um, in the real world. Uh, and there are all, and I talk about this in the book as being sort of a, a perfect rhetorical fortress on the left to try mm -hmm. to get people to think about cancel culture as only the most extreme rhetorical advice, uh, device to win arguments without actually winning arguments. And we talk about all these other mechanisms that social media has empowered. Um, on, on the right, we call it the efficient rhetorical fortress. On the left, we call it the perfect rhetorical fortress, ways of just, uh, of just never having to actually engage with the argument of the other side. And I feel like all of these different defense mechanisms are now so firmly ensconced in our 24-hour culture war, you know, um, uh, brains all the time, like it's, it's hard, like it was hardwired into us, that the ability to do like we used to be able to do, which is say, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I still consider myself, and I mean this, I still consider myself left to center, but yeah, I could admit that, oh yeah, like the crazy PC people, yeah, like that, that's a real problem and, and don't want anything to do with them. Whereas now it's kind of like, I cannot admit that there's anything wrong on my side. The only thing that's wrong is on the other side. And, and the right does this as well, of course. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, you know, when it comes to cancel culture, yes, we, we, we call out uh, censorship on the right. Um, but there's definitely going to be a whole crop of people who that should be the end of the entire analysis. Meanwhile, kind of like when you look at the numbers on cancel culture, it's like, yeah, this problem is, and I'm going to say it this way, on our side. And we have to we have to own it because it's destructive, it's anti-intellectual, it's compassionless, and it destroys trust and expertise because nobody knows if someone's saying what they really actually think or if they're just afraid of, of, of what the mob's going to do to them. This uh, phenomenon, uh, you pin it as starting at sort of the end of 2013 and the beginning of 2014. And that's a time period that I've seen repeated by several people that follow these trends and also just um, are just cultural critics. And I wonder, you know, what what can we identify about what's going on in 2013? Yeah, why 2013? those years? Why those years? Yeah. Well, uh, well, one reason why people keep coming back to it is because those of us who are on the ground back then, it wasn't like we realized in retrospect <laughs> something weird had just happened. We were on the phone to each other like, what the hell's going on? Like, wh why yeah. are students suddenly like deplatforming everybody? Why are, why are they demanding medicalized treatment for exposure to speech? Like, wh what just happened? Because it, it was fast um, and, and it hit, you know, I always talk about it hitting like lightning struck. So yeah. definitely one of the reasons why a lot of us came to this conclusion is, is, is that's what it felt like in real time. Now, how do we actually get there? I mean, I, I try to read as much as I can, obviously, like on this topic. And Martin Gurry's uh, book, the the um, the the revolt of the, the revolt of the public. Revolt of public. Um, he's he's a CIA uh, f former um, an analyst, and he points out that some of the social media explosion 
um, some of the changes that you see to the dynamics of the world first really became noticeable on a global scale in Occupy Wall Street, in uh, mm -hmm. protests both in Spain and Israel, and of course the Arab Spring. So yep. there was a twenty, there was a little 20, 2011 sort of like blip when you look at um, professor cancellations as well, uh, where, where you see this little, you know, little edge. But why 2013, 2014? Here, here's, here's my theory. Um, that's when people, and this is great to have a, a Generation Z co-author, right? My, my absolutely right. freaking brilliant 23-year-old, you know, Wunderkind that I got to work with. Um, she she grew up with this and she, she talks about it. It's like, well, I know, I know we talk about cancel culture beginning in 2014, but I entirely grew up in this. Like this was, this was just life, you know, but it's when her, and I, I'm like, well, there's a reason for that, Ricky. It's cause it's when your generation hit higher ed that people right. started really noticing how different it was and, and how much there was this like, you know, kind of feeding frenzy to, you know, uh, go after people who were, uh, non-conforming and, and uh, to browbeat them over opinions. And so I, I do really think it's the, the biggest factor is, of course, social media sped everything up, uh, sped, uh, create, didn't just speed up existing trends like polarization, et cetera. It also created new ones like the horrible phenomena of Tumblr, uh, uh, out of which, you know, <laughs> all terrible mental health ideas seem to have uh, arisen to some degree. Right, right. Uh, and uh, it, it, you know, it spread, unfortunately, to the to the rest of society, all while at the same time saying this isn't even happening at all. Right. Um, you know, you, one of the so so this book uh, is like an interesting walk through the last several years for many of us that have, you know, experienced. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of a bummer. It's like, oh, it was a, again. Oh. it was a walk down the trauma lane of, yeah. I mean, like it, it's, it's, um, you know, there's a cumulative effect to reading yeah. like, oh my God. Okay. There was this. And then there was that. And then there's, you know, all of this has been happening piecemeal and nobody's ever done a, a complete study of this yet. Um, and one of the things I appreciated that you set out early in the book was that you kind of talked about the scale of, of this happening, you know, and, and, you know, say that like, you think this, this period is going to be studied by history, you know, much yes. like the, the Red Scare in Hollywood or the Alien and Sedition Acts. I yep. wondered if you could give us a sense of the scale. I know you have specifically data on like professor cancellations. Yeah. And, and that's just, a, you know, an artifact of the fact that there's just some data is incredibly hard to find. You know, if you, if you look in a corporation cancellations, you're not going to find out about a lot of them because a lot of those things are actually solved by NDAs and, and, and severance agreements. Right. But we were able to, uh, since I, at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, we have an absolutely magnificent research department. Um, and we were keeping track of free speech developments, obviously, on campus. And we were keep and the best the the ones where you can be the most confident, you know at least a substantial portion of. You can't know all of it, uh, but know a substantial portion of are professors getting fired or otherwise punished. Why? Because at least at the top two hundred or three hundred schools, those places have student newspapers, and it makes the news um, if, if a professor gets canceled. Now, what doesn't make the news is the fact that. Um, a lot of professors aren't hired in the first place. There are bias-related incident programs that let you call call your professors, um, like actually report your professors for offensive speech and your friends, by the way. Um, 
and these exist at most campuses around the country now, um, including, you know, pretty much all of the elite schools. Um, and so, like, I, I make the point that with such low viewpoint diversity and so many other mechanisms to shut people up, it's amazing they find any heretics to burn in the first place. <laughs> and what we found was, and oh, I, and that also helps it get scale. So um, the law was established protecting academic freedom and freedom of speech from 1957, Sweezy v. New Hampshire, to Papish um, uh, in 1973. And, and those are the, like, the bookends of professor free speech and, uh, and, and student free speech. And that, um, and there's nothing even vaguely close to the number of professors we're seeing here. To, to give a sense of perspective, I started right after 9-11, and for several years, there were professors getting canceled for um, speech related to 9-11 or the Iraq War. We saw over a dozen cases. I think we saw about 15. Um, that's bad, to be clear. And about three yeah. of them were fired, although most of them were justified by things like academic misconduct or, like, I mean, not actual, they were explained away, you know, at the time, even though we thought these were bad cases. Uh, and three professors were fired. Um, that's bad. A single professor getting fired, you know, back in 2014, the American Association of University Professors did an entire issue just on one professor being fired because it is a big deal. Mm-hmm. In this one, since the beginning of cancel culture, which we mark from 2014, uh, 2014 uh, to, to, to today, we, we look at a thousand, over a thousand examples of professors being targeted. About two thirds of those professors are punished in some way, and nearly 200 of them are, are fired. That includes something like 40, I think, um, uh, tenured professors. Which, And by the way, when I started my career, it was I assumed to be impossible to get a tenured mm-hmm. professor fired for speech, for research, for things related to academic freedom. And now it happens all the time. And I try to put this in perspective for people. Okay, Red Scare. Whole thing happened before the law was clear that you couldn't fire people for just for being communists. Because the, the way they justified this at, at, during the Red Scare was essentially, we found they're communists. Communists are too doctrinaire. They can't be trusted to not indoctrinate kids. So we're firing them. There was a massive study going on right at the, uh, all, like during the Red Scare, because they knew it was happening. They weren't gaslighting people and pretending it wasn't. And at the time, they, they found, I think it was 62 or 63 professors that were fired specifically for being communist, about 90 overall fired for opinion, um, and that gets rounded up to 100. Um, and now we're talking about 200, and but still people are claiming this isn't happening at all. And I want to be really clear. We also know that that is just um, that that is just the tip of the iceberg because nobody really knows what's going on in in schools outside of say the top two hundred or, or or three hundred. But when we polled professors, if they've been uh, threatened uh, with being punished or investigated for their speech, research, academic freedom, protected activities, one in six said they actually had either be threatened, been threatened, or actually investigated. And one third had been told by colleagues and by administrators to avoid, quote unquote, controversial research. So this this is happening on a scale that we are going to be studying in 50 to 100 years, you know, if the media is still sufficiently independent to look into it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how much, to, a two-part question here, how much of this has been, do you think, spearheaded by students, um, maybe students that had been coddled and now (laughs) without having to actually gain, you know, uh, inquisition and knowledge to then bring forth their ideas when it's just so easy to, or easier, let's say, to be part of a wave or a movement where you can see your, you know, in air quotes, enemies or anything you might feel offended. How much of this sort of teacher 
firings and cancellations are student-driven versus the administration that is either a true believers in yeah. as the students are or just know where you know they want to save their own necks so they're going to be part of the um part of the mob there's there's a couple different dynamics going on but one thing that partially because height and i emphasize so much that from you know and i always emphasize for most of my career it was administrators doing doing the bad things going after the professors going silencing the students um and then in 2014 the students started being bad on free speech, at least some of them themselves. But sometimes people think like, oh, it used to be administrators, but now it's students. Like, no, 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 no. Now it's administrators and students. Because if you'll notice, like the ones who are getting canceled on campus, um, and there's a that's an important caveat, by the way, um, it tends to be ones that are popular with the administration. So every time, for example, there's a shout down on campus, and I've said this many times, and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, there should be an investigation about whether or not the administration did anything to stop it, or in more likely in many cases, help put it together and facilitate it. Because that's certainly what happened at Stanford Law School. Like they, they, they were meeting with uh, Terry and Steinbach for hours, you know, before before the disruption. They shouted down a Fifth Circuit judge, which I always stress because I'm like, that's one level below the Supreme Court. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal judge. Um, they shouted him down for 10 minutes and then Tyrion Steinbach gets, comes up to in front of the class with a pre-prepared speech, you know, that she has to like unfold, like as, and, and, and the, but then tries to act like somehow this wasn't pre-planned. Um, so the administrators are frankly collaborating and encouraging with and not all administrators, but, but some and, and making this problem much worse. So it's not, it, it's, and that's one of the reasons why when some of these shout downs or some of these other things happen on campus, they need to look at their own administrators um, because like oftentimes it's DEI administrators, um, but sometimes it's not. And the, the, it's created the situation where you can, uh, you, if, uh, you know, Tyrion Steinbach decides they don't want this one uh, speaker coming to campus, they can figure out a way to at least, even if they show up, to, to shout them down and make sure that the speech isn't affected. So unfortunately, I think the underappreciated part of this is how much of a role um, administrators play in practically all of these cases. And I often feel that the administrators are trying to justify their existence on the campus. I mean, one <laughs> yes. of the things that you bring is up correct. is the explosion of administrators. I just want to read briefly this one bit about Yale University that has more employees than it does students. In fact, the school has 2.44 administrators for every faculty member and one administrator for every four students. That's the same ratio the government recommends for child care of infants under 12 months. <laughs> That's something Ricky found, and, and I just I I, I I I ended up being very parental about this because I'm just so proud of her, you know. Like, oh. and she 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 was just really uh, really great to work with in that little stat. Like that that's a kind of like detail that really brings brings things home. I mean, God, it's it also really the case there's no real value in you know uh, canceling the janitor, right? You, but what, they did that it? at Smith. Well, that's true. They did. <laughs> You, 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 you were saying something that sounded fanciful, but it's like, oh, but there was that one time. That had a racial component, of course, right? But it's, it's you know, you often, it's like you're going to bring down the person that is going to get you maybe more visibility. I'm not saying you necessarily want to swap it for their job, but it, it helps to bring down someone that's got some, or helps, I'm using that very loosely, to bring down someone that has some status, Right, you know, that, 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 I, I would actually dis, uh, disagree on that. I see little people get taken down all the time, and if you have a certain amount of status, like like people tried, to, there was an attempt to get Steve Pinker canceled, 
and mm-hmm. he's on our advisory council. He's a great champion of academic freedom. I'm a big, big fan of his. And when the cancel mobs that were that were going after professors hard in 2020 decided that they're going to try to, you know, knock famously conservative, which he's not, he's a, he's a very proud Democrat, um, <clears throat> Professor uh, Steve Pinker off, at least he had a lot of people coming out going, no, <laughs> no, right. no, 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 no. Whereas a lot of the other ones, you know, they, they didn't have, uh, they might have fire to fall back on. But in 2020, we were so swamped with uh, uh, requests for help from professors and students that uh, we, we were barely treading water. There is uh, one thing I noticed is, you know, we, we were all familiar with the leftward um slide of of universities two things about that leftward slide uh as conservatives continue to disappear from academia there is a perverse sense of what makes someone conservative (laughs) like you just described you know steven pinker becomes conservative because in absence of anybody else like i i guess he is but the other thing is that the low tolerance for for conservative ideas as you push conservatives off campus your tolerance for conservative thought uh, grows smaller and smaller. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things when, when I talked about that perfect rhetorical fortress um, that, that I introduced in the beginning, uh, step number one on the left is label something conservative and you don't have to think about it anymore. And I say this, by the way, from experience. When I started Stanford in 97, if you could do the game of, of saying, oh, that, that, that author, he, that's a conservative. And I'd be like, oh, okay, mentally check them off. You know, like, and, and these are, intelligent people, I'd like to argue, you know, like these are highly educated people who argue like children in a way that, because I remember being kind of like, yeah, that's why I never, that's why I never got around to reading Thomas Sowell until much later. I thought that was such, that that was such a good example. And, and there's so many people like that, that are brilliant thinkers, but it's like, you don't need to think about that. You don't need to think about that. That guy's a conservative. Yeah. And and it's it's a wonderful trick, but also Camille Paglia, you you know, who, 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 you know, you, you know who is is ultimately a lefty, but 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 very to say she's heterodox is is, is an understatement. Um, and that's and but and if you have a tactic that works that well, even even with highly educated people, it's no wonder that next thing you know, people are arguing that the ACLU was right wing and the New York Times is right wing because it's worked on everybody else before. Um, so why not actually just make everyone conservative that you disagree with? Uh, dissent solved you don't have to listen to any of them does does academia not fear instilling uh in people the making people afraid to speak their minds yeah uh it doesn't seem like they care all that much about it um well depending depending on the schools so so one thing i'm very proud of is that fire uh one of the reasons why we added this robust research department was so that we could actually really do a rigorous um, campus free speech rankings, like because people have been asking me since I started Fire way back in two thousand one, can't you rank schools? And I'm like, absolutely not. Like like that that would require a lot more data than I have. Um, but now we actually have it. And the, the 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 real breakthrough was working with an organization called College Pulse that could actually ask students directly what they uh, what the atmosphere was like on campus for speech, how tolerant they personally are of violence in response to freedom of speech as well. So kind of like getting it from both directions, if they feel like they can disagree with their friends or their professors. And that's one of the biggest factors that we have in doing their ranking. 
the next four things are, uh, and, and, and by the way, this is the biggest study ever conducted of student opinion on this stuff. And it's been that case for years now. We, 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 the only person who's done a, a study nearly as big is fire the year before. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but we also include four databases, the scholars under fire database, which is professor cancellation, students under fire, student cancellations, our deplatforming database and our speech code database. <clears throat> and we organize them all together to figure out what schools are good on free speech and which aren't. The answer is no, not all that many places are great on it. Um, and elite colleges tend to be really, really, really bad, like extra bad, with two exceptions. Uh, UVA finished in the top 10 this year. University of Mich uh, University of Chicago, um, it used to be number one. It went down to 13 for mishandling a, a case uh, like um, relating to one student group. But still, I, I still advise, I'm still like, no, they're still very good. We have, you know, there's still 13 out of 248. Harvard, dead last, totally earned it. Um, University of Pennsylvania, second from last. University of South Carolina, um, actually, sorry, the next one is Georgetown is third from last and then followed by University of South Carolina. So it doesn't always it doesn't always work out, you know, to be to, to follow predictable sort of like political stereotypes of who actually ends up being the worst uh, schools in the country. So some are doing comparatively good jobs, but elite colleges, with the exception of those two that I mentioned, are, are doing terrible jobs. And, and I was giving a talk in Boston maybe two weeks ago and there was an MIT student there who was like, really like well surely i mean like, all these like little state schools and all these other places like surely like they're we're just getting more scrutiny you're, you're not saying elite higher education is, is that much worse and i'm like and I, i'm like I, I tried to get as compassionate and soft about it as possible and i'm like i'm really sorry but i've been doing this for 22 years and there is no question this stuff is worse in elite colleges like zero one I mean, of the things, oh, sorry, go ahead. I Nancy. was just going to say, I, I, I don't know the correlation, but we do know that, um, isn't it the case that registration at some of these schools is going down? Yeah. And I can't say, so, I think that's the worst thing in the world. No, I, I kind of agree. And I would kind of say, you know, as, as someone who has a young adult child, I would not be so keen to spend, you know, $70,000 spending them, sending them to Harvard. If, yeah. if I know that she's going to be intimidated into or encouraged or threatened into not investigating and not speaking her mind, I, I would yeah. I would not send my child there. Well, and, he, and here's, you know, I, I pick on Harvard a lot, but that's partially because that's where a lot of the data is. But also, you know, they finished dead last. So they're, yeah. they're a good example. And they're the most famous school in the country. The, the um, one of the things that I point out is that there is an opportunity here because um I think about like how suddenly I became kind of like a legitimate human being because I went to Stanford and how much that irked me that there were people who were kind of like, Oh, you're, you're smart now. And it's like, thanks. You know, like the, the, the that feels incredibly classist and messed up. Um, but we do, we te we treat elite college graduates with much greater, um, like much greater deference than we ever should have. But the case for it's worse than ever, because right now, I think it's 45% of white students who attend uh, Harvard are either kids of uh, kids of legacies, uh, kids of professors, or sports. Hello, Smoker, we've got them listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Hepla. Sarah Hepla, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh 
interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.